0: Hi, I'm Jason Hatcher, Managing Principal at Navigator's Western offices. I'm excited to welcome you back to The Western Edge, a new podcast by Navigator here in Western Canada. As we celebrate Canada Day and our neighbours to the south celebrate the 4th of July this weekend, what better time than to discuss the Canada-US relationship? and where we are going in terms of climate change, clean tech, and the energy sector. We are pleased to be joined today to discuss this topic by Michaela McQuaid, a senior analyst with the Eurasia Group based in Washington, D.C. An Albertan born and raised, Michaela has worked not only in the energy sector here in Canada, but as well with the Canadian government advising the Minister of Natural Resources, as well as the Minister of Environment and Climate Change. At the Eurasia Group, Michaela specializes in policy issues shaping the oil and gas, renewable energy, sustainable finance, and mining sectors. We are so pleased to have Michaela join us today. You've heard it before, the West wants in. This is the Western Edge. Michaela, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be able to speak to my roots, both professionally and personally, and get back with my Canadian crowd. So I appreciate the opportunity.
0: So look, first, before we dive right into to some of the topics we want to hit today, let, I got to ask: you've been, I think, in the in the U.S. capital now for about a year and a half. Uh, that whole capital word has taken on a whole new meaning, I think, in the last last uh, last this year, anyway. What has it been like going from Ottawa, seat of power in Canada, now to Washington, watching that incredible transition of power? I put that in air quotation marks for our listeners. What's that been like?
1: It's it's been incredible. I mean, I moved down to D.C. in December of uh, 2019. So just in kind of the the months leading up to the COVID-19 lockdown and fell in love with Washington, D.C. It's an incredible city, just a hotbed of culture and politics and all the stuff that kind of lights our collective fires. Um, And then to watch the the different responses as a Canadian and and living the, the American experience through the pandemic and through all of the turmoil on Capitol Hill and to see that transition of power or maybe less peaceful than anybody had uh, imagined or desired but to watch it's just been absolutely fascinating and to be part of um, a policy conversation that I've been part of for my short albeit full career thus far um, to to see it happen in in real time here in DC has been an absolute privilege so it's been great to explore here.
0: Yeah well uh, Washington uh, is certainly an interesting place to be for those of us who uh uh, have to admit to our our addiction to uh, to politics. It's so a, quite a perch you have there to to look from. Absolutely. You know, look in in this series that we're doing here, we're, we're looking at sort of Alberta, Alberta's place in Canada and the world, and 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 sort of economically uh, how we put our foot forward from this province. You, but we want to start obviously with the whole energy, the climate change piece, and the evolving nature of energy production and how Canadians, but but also the whole world is viewing uh, energy and where it's going you've had an incredible view. Um, you've seen climate change as a science. You've seen it become a political issue. You are part of that. Uh, and, and you've really now, beyond the pandemic, seen it become uh, one of the most pressing issues of our, of our time. Um, tell us a little bit about that, what that's looked like from you, for, from your perspective, coming from industry and, and now uh, seeing President Biden come in.
1: It's been absolutely fascinating. And I think you and I have been part of this conversation in Calgary and Ottawa and and elsewhere um, in the private and public sector for a long time. And I think if you see this conversation kind of maturing and accelerating in ways that maybe not all of us expected, and really inherently, we talked about this earlier about skipping certain steps of of what we know to be or what we expect the decarbonization pathway for the energy sector to look like. And I think the, the seat from DC and the transition from the Trump presidency in the Trump administration to the Biden administration has been really formative in terms of understanding the mechanics of policymaking in DC and, and understanding that, uh, you know, a lot of people assume that Biden is waging a war on industry, but I think at best, in terms of what he can achieve with being in power, but not being in control with respect to a, a slim majority in the Senate and, and that really hamstringing his legislative agenda is at best functionally, he's being passive aggressive towards the energy sector, but you and I both know that for investment, for regulatory certainty, that's really impactful for a lot of the people and companies that we care about being successful. And I think um, overall, what you've seen from the White House is an aggressive posture to integrate climate change in a way that it never has been in the United States into every, every level of policy in every federal department and really making it at the core of whatever they're trying to achieve and that has really deep ramifications on labor on industrial policy on trade policy on its diplomatic and geopolitical relationships around the world. And I think you saw that with the kickoff of the summit, you saw that with really aggressive near term action on executive orders and re-regulation. So overall, you've seen this be a really active space, but a lot of open questions remain with respect to the energy sector and respect to how the U.S. is positioning itself on coal, on oil, on gas, on on different decarbonization pathways, because a lot of people around the world are looking to the U.S. for leadership on that front. And I think to a certain degree, Canada as well, and trying to understand if the U.S. pathway is one that can be emulated elsewhere. And I think that'll have pretty deep implications for the energy sector.
0: So let's keep keep looking at that American perspective for a minute. President Biden has been like a man in a hurry. Um, he, he's been on the move. Um, we're well into his first 100 days at this point in time. We saw $2 trillion uh, committed, I think, to, to clean energy initiatives and, and to the energy sector generally. Beyond the pandemic, is climate change the biggest issue for this president?
1: I would say so indefinitely, and I think you've seen that as um, you've seen that as he positions it at the core of his industrial trade and international relationships there's there are a few issues, I would say, other than maybe poverty alleviation and education and immigration (laughs) that feature as prominently in this in this government's mandate, and I think that the enthusiasm that you've seen on climate. Um, is in part to appease kind of a grumbly left of the party, but also to show really near term action when a lot of people thought that he might not be able to achieve much. And obviously, that's in the context of of 2021 as a whole. If you look ahead to the G7, the G20, the World Economic Forum, you're looking ahead to November and COP and really starting to see, okay, the US is back, the starting gun has gone off. What does that mean for the policy conversation for, for the rest of the year?
0: Exactly. And, and that's kind of what, what I wanted to ask you next. I mean, from the Alberta perspective, even from the Canadian perspective, trying to parse out and understand what all these actions mean, whether it be KXL, you know, some troubles on line five and the like, what does all this mean for the industry in Alberta? Uh, you know, is Alberta even on the radar screen? Or is it just the oil sands that are?
1: I think in large part, it's, it's, generally a primary focus on, on climate and a secondary focus on energy, which has been really transformational in terms of the, the boots-on-the-ground politics related to climate and energy, right? You've, you've often seen oil be the named and shamed resource that people try to attack with policy and political um, efforts, but you're really seeing that as kind of secondary and the, the administration focusing on what does the economy of tomorrow look like and how do we drive there? So rather than necessarily... Um, making it absolutely restrictive on oil, you're looking at them making it a lot easier to be green and a lot more economically efficient and incentivized by the government. So in terms of what this means for Alberta, I think the US is a proxy of, of the conversation going on globally. And you have to take from the conversation in Washington a valuable lesson about the importance of energy trade to geopolitical relations and to bilateral negotiations across policy fronts, right? Like, if you think of Trump and Trudeau renegotiating NAFTA, Trudeau needed to be at that table. You know, maybe Trump could have gotten away with some, of, some marginal reform without really fulsome participation by the Canadians, but Biden doesn't need Canada in the same way that he needed, that Trump needed them for NAFTA. And I think that's really important in terms of taking from that maybe a lower station in terms of our our own geopolitical importance to the American market in one that is aggressively trying to to pivot away from the use of oil. So I think that if anything, um, we remain an important uh, ally of the United States. And I think that Biden has taken a few steps to demonstrate that, you know, There's recognition in D.C. that the past four years have not been easy for Canada on a number of fronts. Um, And that kind of repairing that relationship is important. But the degree to which energy features prominently in that discussion is probably going to be limited for at least the next two to four years.
0: So... You know, how does Canada kind of elevate itself then? I mean, we look at, at you know, you mentioned that the Trump perspective, needing it on the NAFTA side, a little less maybe on, on the Biden side, but when we look at energy uh, and we look at it from a North American context, I mean, you know, the U.S. has gone from being our biggest customer to our biggest comp- competitor. Now, is there an opportunity for 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 us to, I mean, the, the, the energy so, energy industry is so integrated across the board, like so many things uh, between Canada and the U.S., is there an opportunity for a North American approach and, and where are the starting points for that? How, what would it look like?
1: Well, I think you have uh, the framework for a lot of North American energy cooperation and, and strategies for for um, working together on that. And you saw that develop through previous NAFTA neg- negotiations and having dedicated tables for just that. But I think the real cooperation story is one that was kicked off at the the climate summit that Biden hosted on Earth Day here here on the twenty second of April. And I think that if you saw Canada move forward with kind of marginal improvements on their nationally determined contribution to take forward to go in the COP process, that's, that's a very intelligent strategic move by the government of Canada to say, we were going to do this anyways, but we'll give you this credit and we'll show up as a willing partner on climate to basically establish goodwill for all of the other things that Canada needs to achieve. And if you look at the difficulties on Live 5 and the political complexities of Biden weighing into that debate and the political consequences of him weighing into that debate, Canada needs to build a lot of goodwill. And I think there are other opportunities in terms of collaboration on methane, on CCS, like as the US basically comes back to the table that Canada has remained at pretty lonely over the past four or five years, it's it's a really strategic opportunity for Canada to say, here's all the things we've learned from there then until now. Here are all the things that we want to achieve and the different ways that we could integrate different supply chains, be they in energy or otherwise. And I think part of that is the decarbonization story. If there is a place for imported oil in the American market, I think Canada has a great case to make in terms of it being some of the highest carbon pricing Jurisdiction, oil that there is, and that if um, Biden is serious about climate, that should be a pretty critical part of the conversation.
0: So let's let's unpack that a little bit because you've said a couple of things I think are really interesting, and and do you sense there's been a shift in the discussion around? Uh, oil and gas production when it comes to climate change, right? It it seemed that a few years ago it was how are we going to very recently and how are we going to transition completely off as quickly as possible? It seems now that the conversation both in Canada and the United States, we saw it uh, with 45Q in the US and and Canada now looking at something similar and doing some consultations in around carbon capture. Have you noticed a shift to how we can decarbonize the industry as opposed to Kind of a uh, quick phase out that that frankly we know is going to be challenging. We know there's a need for for oil and gas and the energy it produces for for at least the time to come.
1: I think there is, but I think that comes with a, a joint picture of limited growth in terms of of oil production in in Canada and the U S. And I think that it's not an or but an and and I think that all of those strategies in terms of decarbonizing difficult to abate sectors if you look across heavy industries the story is the same cement chemicals fertilizers oil you're looking at as governments kind of push forward and push the envelope on climate commitments you're getting really tricky and expensive emission reductions, many of which rely on technologies that haven't been proven or scaled, if you look ahead to kind of where we need to be to meet the Paris Agreement commitments. And if you think about something like carbon capture and storage and oil, I think there's a general relaxation of kill production to decarbonize production with a recognition that where we are and where we want to be is there's a significant time and investment gap to get there. And I think that you, that's absolutely absolutely true reflected in policy. In politics, I think it's a less clear cut picture and that general propensity of the left and kind of the green undercut of of the parties in power is really going to push governments and going to create very little political space to allow them to moderate in any way, shape, or form on any of their commitments. So when major permitting decisions come before the president, when major kind of energy export decisions come in before the president, I think you're going to see some really complex politics that don't necessarily afford the energy sector the same bandwidth necessarily to to continue to operate and, and decarbonize, especially when you consider Uh, public investment from the government. So if you look at what we're doing to recover from from COVID-19 and the different industrial streams that can be leveraged for for stimulus, I think that you're not going to see um, a lot of political uh, support for measures that really kind of solidify or lock in any emissions profiles. So where there is support for um, decarbonization of heavy industry, it'll be not on the production side, but on kind of the capture and and utilization of, of carbon.
0: So what does that mean for, for Canadian or Alberta oil producers specifically? Like what do they have to do? It's, it's a quagmire, right? It's a, it's a tough situation because, you know, on one hand, we know demand for for oil and gas is is still rising and and that may change in the future. We know that there are developing countries that um, are looking to rely on, on, on oil and gas. Um, We've heard from the industry. We know in this country, how much it contributes to um, our, uh, uh, our economy. And we can't really hit our Paris targets without dealing with oil and gas. What do oil producers need need to do? How important is it for them to move move beyond the economic argument and and start talking about climate change as as something that that they are focused on, that is real, um, or is that even necessary?
1: Well, I think trying to remove my personal bias from this, I think it's absolutely imperative. And I think that um, you're seeing this develop with different net zero commitments out of of the Canadian oil patch and elsewhere, and a really earnest look at what are called scope three emissions of the, of the, the emissions from the end use of your product. And I think the forward looking producers have said, ultimately, the debate has changed. I am no longer responsible for the emissions that come from my facility. I am responsible for the emissions that, you know, a result from fuel being burned and if you look at kind of the emissions a pie chart of where our emissions come from, transportation is a really big part of that. So I think this shift in thinking, and this is a conversation you and I have had, the shift in thinking about talking about climate change and an industrial strategy to address it is very much about what can I do about my emissions in the past is now about what can we do about all our emissions. And that's a really tough sell when you're thinking about ultimately pulling your product out of the energy mix and it's essentially making yourself extinct to a large degree when you're you're talking about scope three emission reductions and really that demand destruction that comes from substitution that comes from aggressive electric vehicle penetration and what have you. So I think the degree to which the industry can pivot to position itself as a safe and secure supply of energy, And not only that, but to look at the corollary industries. So if there are opportunities, and if there is going to be huge market demand for petrochemicals, obviously plastics will feature prominently in the climate debate for the next 10 years, Mm -hmm. then that's another way that the industry can demonstrate how imperative it is. And just on the the political salience of that, uh, increasingly governments are struggling to find ways to implement what is referred to as a just transition. And I think when you you consider the expected labor impacts and the the regional and um, economic disruptions expected from really transformational changes in economic footprints everywhere and industrial footprints, that's going to be a problem that the oil and gas industry is well suited to advise on and to, to retool their industries and their workforces to contribute to climate action.
0: Um, so, how important is carbon capture, uh, utilization, and storage uh, in this path forward? Does it does it present the opportunity for 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 the industry to start talking about clean tech, maybe defining it itself in a different way? And how important is that to define itself beyond uh, economic impact?
1: It, it's absolutely imperative, as I said about kind of the climate change conversation generally. And I think if you look ahead towards the expectations of. Um, something like the Paris scenario or the IEA sustainable development scenario and their expectations for how much carbon capture um, utilization and storage is expected in order to meet our Paris goals collectively. You see that there's no two ways around climate action without CCS. And I think that industry can be a key contributor for driving down the costs and and really leveraging their historic technological know-how into those industrial applications. And that is highly applicable to other sectors as i mentioned cement and fertilizer and and steel and what have you so i think that that if that comes the the political question there is is whether or not you can do that without an aggressive push on actual abatement too and you're seeing the grounds change um beneath us with respect to the the politics of climate action where those solutions are really only acceptable to kind of climate purists if they are paired with aggressive mitigation and and emissions abatement. So to the extent that you have a holistic picture, I think that's imperative to the success of that picture in the same way that you see support for carbon offsets deteriorating right in front of our eyes as voluntary markets globally get kicked off. It's a general feeling and a general policy push that you can't just rely on reducing someone else's emissions if they're cheaper. You have to be able to minimize your own footprint first to the degree that is technologically uh, achievable and economically efficient.
0: So Michaela, for our listeners, I've noticed, I've used CCUS, which includes that utilization, carbon capture utilization and storage, and you've kind of used CCS. And and I just want to drill down on that. We we saw some language in the federal budget uh, and the presentations afterwards that there was concerns about enhanced oil recovery. Uh, EOR, Do you see utilization piece being controversial going forward? Do you think that's going to be a stumbling block? And, a block? and I guess ultimately, do you see a production gap cap coming on either or both sides of the border?
1: Um, on the latter question, I don't. I think that the governments on both sides of the border can be highly effective in curtailing production by making it more difficult with different regulatory interventions, as anybody in Calgary, I think, can appreciate at the provincial and federal level. Um, Maybe not an, an
0: official cap, but a uh,
1: yeah, and, and without what the ref- name. Exactly. And I refer to that kind of as a soft ban, right, that you make it so cumbersome, or you make kind of climate change considerations feature so prominently. And with the introduction of the social co- cost of carbon in the US, you have kind of a, a shadow carbon pricing effect in federal decision making, that really is enough to, to curtail a lot of production. And then when you layer on methane regulations for existing sources versus just um, new sources going forward, that really does add kind of a cost prohibitive nature to, to producing. So I think that the, the government here, at least in the United States, will be effective in doing so with with a soft ban in terms of um, enhanced oil recovery. I, I think the the debate is a bit premature in Canada. And I think that in the US, there's pretty broad acceptance even among the environmental community that enhanced oil recovery if a, if a ton of carbon is reduced, it's a ton of carbon reduced and, yeah. and there isn't really necessarily that same um, prejudice against where it's coming from. I think generally, and you'll see this um, throughout the kind of climate calendar that I listed out at the outset, you'll see this conversation about fossil fuel subsidization feature really prominently in domestic and international politics. And really, I think when you look at some of the moves that the Biden administration has floated with respect to cutting tax credits for production. that really make or break the economics of oil production here in the US, then that's where you get into really substantive conversations about curtailed um, production rather than just on on EOR or other corollary pieces like it.
0: Yeah, no, it it is fascinating, as we discussed earlier, you know, to to really watch the the focus now become on decarbonization. Um, And and that seems to be the the eye on the prize, so to speak, as opposed to, to worrying about how we get there, let's get there in the right way. You know, does oil and gas have, I mean, we know they've got a branding problem, but but when it comes to things like ESG, environmental sustain, uh, sustainable and government, sustainability and governance, look, I can't even do it, uh, to CCS or CCUS, which we've talked about, to net zero, you know, how important it is for, for the industry to to start speaking to these issues, defining these issues and and explaining to people who perhaps are, are, are not following it as deeply as you and I.
1: Well, I I think it's a question of of defining the space before somebody else defines it for you. And if that's a a conversation that you want to leave to regulators in D.C. and Ottawa, or that's a conversation you want to be a fulsome participant in to really ensure that the complexities of the industry and the differentiation between different operations, you and I both know that in the oil sands, no two operators are alike, no two production facilities are alike. To capture that in kind of globally accepted frameworks for environmental, social and governance investing or or otherwise in any policy framework is incredibly complex and and in order to do Um, justice to the kind of environmental record, but also to the ESG performance of the sector, I think that they are a really important player in that conversation. And given the the pace and scale and scope of, of sustainable finance here in the US, I think Canada will likely follow suit very shortly. And you're already seeing some of that develop at the Provincial Securities Commissions and um, that's only a threat that will grow and you have to think of that not in terms of just cost and availability of capital, but cost of insurance and availability of insurance and, and uh, a bunch of other really restrictive lending policies in place.
0: Yeah, it's certainly, I think, focused a lot of the boardrooms, um, at least on this side of the border, in terms of, of what the future might look like um, and how to get there. I mean, the industry is doing lots of things, um, and I think it's important, like you said, to get out there and start talking about it. Uh, maybe just to finish up, look, we know energy is, is, is the great conundrum of, of, of humanity, right? We, we know we need it in the future, whatever form it comes in. How hopeful are you uh, and what do you see in the future kind of circling back to that North American strategy? And, and you know, is there going to be enough appetite to move the ball in that.
1: I am so hopeful. It is really easy to be a nihilist in this space and just to say I'm looking at the projections. There's enough of that going around with COVID, uh, isn't exactly, it? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm looking at the projections. I'm looking at the emissions. I'm looking at the kind of the longevity of those emissions and, and our projections for Paris. But I am absolutely hopeful. I mean, it, if you see the technological progress that has been made in Canada and the oil sands, if you see the, the steep curves that have been realized in terms of making renewable solutions cost-effective and, and really just kind of game-changing, that I think that should give you cause for, for optimism. And I think that there absolutely can and should be a place for Canadian energy in that low-carbon future. It's just a matter of really providing the, the policy framework and having enough private sector momentum to define a credible position in that energy mix.
0: Yeah, it has been incredible to see how far uh, the needle has moved, uh, both on the industry side and on the government side. You can really see the progress on that industry side and the focus on clean tech. All right. So we're going to head now to uh, the rapid fire question part of our podcast, continuing on the tradition from uh, political uh, traction. So Michaela, I understand you are into the outdoors and of course... Uh, coming from Alberta, I'm not surprised a bit by that. So we're going to go down that route. So let's start off spring, summer, fall, or winter. What's your favorite season to get outside? Fall,
1: absolutely. I'm a shoulder season gal.
0: A shoulder season gal, we don't see many of those anymore out here. (laughs) It's a niche position. (laughs) It really is. So uh, then I I don't, maybe I do know the answer to this, but let's see, Uh, mountains better with snow or without?
1: Uh, I like both. I like the wild card that is is camping in the Rockies where you can experience essentially all, all four seasons at, at once.
0: Okay, so that leads me to my next question. Hiking, wheels like bike or edges like skiing or snowboarding? What's your favorite? Oh,
1: hiking all the way.
0: Hiking, eh? Two so feet you... in my heartbeat. There we go. So camping. Um I'm a big backcountry camper. and um, so is it backcountry car camping, or I even hate to say this, or is it glamping?
1: Oh, I'm backcountry country all the way.
0: (laughs) Bear spray or bear bangers?
1: Bear spray. I've had some bad experience with bear bangers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if we want to go down that road. Uh, I think I know the answer to this one, reading your bio and just hearing your last answers, but hockey or hiking?
1: Hiking all the way.
0: Okay. And last, here's the puffball of the day, Adirondacks or Rockies? Rockies, come there on. There we go, exactly. Michaela, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's great to have hear that perspective from Washington and uh, let's keep in touch, we'll talk again soon.
1: Absolutely, thanks so much, Jason.
0: Western Edge is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show today was produced by Kathy Moore, Kayla Duty, John Gardner, and Kim Drapeck a very special thank you goes out to Michaela McQuaid for joining us today. Tune in every Friday over the summer to listen to the latest episode of the Western Edge.